0: You know, growing up in um, my little home church, uh, backslider was um, a commonly used word. And there were examples of people, you know, who had made a commitment to Christ and, and started participating in the life of our church, and then, you know, suddenly they were gone. They kind of just lost interest. In fact, one of those people, uh, his name was Bob, he actually backslid and ended up in jail. And so my dad would always use that against me. He'd say, don't you need to come back to church, you're going to end up like Bob, and you'll be in the Athens County Jail. So that was always an inspiration uh, to me. <laughs> and then, you know, four years in, in, in college, that seems to be particularly hard on the spiritual life, don't you think? Why do we do that? Why do we spend tens of thousands of dollars, send our kids to school, and they get an education, they come home after that first year with all these body piercings, which isn't, Horrible, but then they come home also with an attitude. Do you ever notice that—that that freshman attitude? And they tell you all the reasons why they don't need to go to church, and maybe they don't believe in God anymore. Why do we? Why do we do that? In one church I served, um, though, there was a young man, and every Sunday we'd have time for prayer. He'd come down, and you know, because he, he felt like he had lost his salvation—that somehow between Sunday and, and, and the past Sunday that he had done something and he needed to repent and get saved all over again that he had worried that he was backsliding. So there's, there's kind of those both of those extremes. Maybe at times you feel like you've lost your faith. Maybe you feel like you've backslidden. We're in week two of our series on the Godhead. We're looking at the... The nature and the characteristics of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And and last week we looked at one of God's characteristics, God uh, our provider, or Jehovah Jireh is is the Hebrew. Uh, Today we look at God our protector, Jehovah uh, uh, Sabayoth, Lord of hosts, the God of the army of angels that surround and protect uh, God's people. I mean, one only has to read through the Bible just to see how fickle that we humans are. I mean, one day Israel is dancing at the Red Sea in victory, and the next day they are grumbling Uh, because there's only manna to eat. I mean, the whole book of of judges and kings is the ups and and downs of the spiritual life of an entire uh, nation. One day they are falling down in in praise and adoration uh, of God Almighty, and then the next day uh, they are bowing down at a Canaanite fertility shrine. And then we have examples in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Timothy about two um, backsliders, um, hymenius and T- Alexander, whom he says made shipwreck of their faith. But I'm the same way, you know? Some days I'm full of faith, other days I'm, I'm full of doubt. Uh, some days I'm, I'm Mr. Optimist, and other days I'm, I feel hopeless, you know? Now, my feelings are important. I mean, they tell me much about what's going on inside of me, But over the years, I've learned not to trust my feelings because they tell me nothing about God or my relationship with him. (laughs) You see, my security comes not from what I feel, but from what I know to be true about God. And what I know to be true about God is that he protects me. The prophet Isaiah lived uh, around 740 to um, 687 B.C. Uh, The Bible tells us that he began his ministry uh, in the year that King Uzziah died and continued through the reign of several kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. You see, in 722, the empire of Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. You see, at this point in history, Israel and Judah had separated. They'd had a civil war. They had separated into two nations soon after King Solomon had passed away. And 10 of the 12 tribes became known as Israel, and the remaining two tribes became known as Judah. And the Assyrian empire had a policy of moving whole populations of their defeated foes to other lands. And so the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel are removed and never heard from again. They're called the ten lost tribes. You ever heard that phrase, the ten lost tribes of Israel? Well, during the reign of, of uh, Hezekiah, Assyria returns, this time to try to invade Judah. Uh, we find the story in Isaiah 37. Jerusalem is surrounded. I mean, they are hopelessly outnumbered. Um, the city is terrified, and defeat is all but imminent. And so Hezekiah, he, he goes, the king Hezekiah, he goes in the temple, he falls on his knees, and he begins to intercede that God would come and help his nation. And God speaks to him and says, I will defend this city, and I will save it. And the next morning, the city of Jerusalem wakes up, and all of the opposing armies are gone. Now you would think after that miracle that Hezekiah would never be afraid again. But in cha- chapter 39, it, it ends on this ominous note. Uh, there's a, a, a prophecy of, uh, that a new empire of Babylon is on the rise. And for the next hundred years, tiny Judah will find itself threatened by, between two opposing empires, Egypt to the south and, and, and Babylon to the to the north. Excuse me. I'm, I'm hearing some popping sound. Isaiah tells Hezekiah, the time will come when the Babylonian army will come and level the city and everyone and everything will be carried off. Fear. Now, most of us fear something, don't we? We've all likely experienced the negative emotions that goes along with fear. Do you ever wonder where your fear comes from? (laughs) I think for starters, fear comes from our inherent instinct of self-preservation. That at, at its very core, fear arises when we feel threatened in some way. We seek to avoid things that threaten us. We try to eliminate that threat. And when we can't eliminate the thing that we fear, we try to avoid it. You have some things that you try to avoid no matter what? Yeah, I I avoid doctors, okay? I just stay away from them. I I don't have any that are even my friends, okay? Just, no. Don't come near me. Some of us avoid, um, some of us fear confrontation, don't we? And and so we avoid relationships. Uh, Some of us fear flying, and so we drive in our car everywhere. Uh, Some of us, you know, are afraid of heights, and so we stay off of ladders. As humans, we don't like being threatened, and most of us will do whatever we can to eliminate or to avoid the things that we fear. I think for a lot of us, too, fear uh, comes from that desire to be safe. Maybe you remember as a, as a young, uh, at a young age, or maybe you parents have said over and over again to your kids, you know, you, you scold them, you, you warn them, don't, don't touch the hot stove. Don't, uh, don't jump off of something that's high. Don't run out into the street without looking first. Um, don't run with scissors. That was one of my parents' favorite. Don't run with those sharp scissors. And then a lot of us did those things anyhow, didn't we? I'm sure we did. For most of us, fear is a result of not being in control. You see, in our quest for self-preservation and safety, we seek to control everything that we do. And by controlling our agendas, we try to eliminate those things that cause us fear. Now, fear is just a big part of our lives. And some of us enjoy facing our fears and conquering those fears, but most of us try to avoid, we try to create this this, this fear-free reality by avoiding the things that scare us. Now, fear is good in the sense that it puts us on guard, keeps us from doing those things that, that can ha- cause us harm. But fear becomes unbearable when we allow it to dictate our lives. When we run our lives uh, to, to avoid fear, we're, we're merely creating this illusion that we're in control. And that's what we don't want to happen. We don't want fear to be in control of our lives because if fear controls us, then what room does that leave for God in our life? Well, 2020 has been a year of fear, hasn't it? First, the virus, social unrest, and we begin to realize that the world is not a safe place, that life is tenuous, and there's nothing that we can do about it. There's not enough law enforcement in the world to protect us from evil and we can arm ourselves we can put a a security system in our house we can store up toilet paper Uh, we can stop sending our children to school and guess what we still have no guarantee. Bertrand Russell was a um, famous British philosopher, historian, mathematician, Nobel Prize winner, and and overall just a smart guy. And he wrote a book entitled Why I Am Not a Christian. And the thesis of the book is that Christianity is based on fear. And he wrote this. He said, fear is the basis for the whole thing. The fear of the mysterious, the fear of doubt, the fear of death. He said the answer to religion the the answer to christianity the answer to fear he said is science He said, science can help us to get over this craven fear in which humankind has lived for so many generations. Science can teach us, and I think our own hearts can teach us, to no longer look around for imaginary support, to no longer invent uh, allies in the sky, but rather to look to our own efforts here below to make this world a fit place to live in instead of the sort of place that churches have made it throughout the centuries. Russell correct are we less fearful because of science the Bible would disagree it tells us that when we find ourselves fearful that we need to put our trust in God chapter 40 of Isaiah begins with these words comfort comfort my people says your God Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Chapter chapter 40 is such a, a radical break from the first 39 chapters that a lot of biblical scholars think that they had to be written by two different people. But in this, Isaiah gives us a warning. He says, don't trust in alliances with other nations. Don't trust in your false idols. He says this, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. In this passage, God reminds his people that they are chosen, that they are his covenant people, that they are servants of God. Indeed, that they are his friends and that no matter how frightening things get, God will never reject them. They need not fear. It's amazing. Time and time again, Judah rejected God. Hi, uh, King Hezekiah, who was a, a great reformer, who did much to bring Israel uh, back to God, was followed by his son Manasseh, who was a mess. The writer of Chronicles sums up Manasseh's reign by saying, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations. He even sacrificed his own children. I mean, talk about a backslider. But God wouldn't give up on him. And after Manasseh went through a series of defeats and great suffering, he finally turns back to the Lord. So is it possible to backslide? Oh, yeah, I believe it is. There are some Christians who say that it's not, that once you're saved, that you're always saved. You can't lose it no matter what you do. But to me, it doesn't hold up biblically or experientially. You see, God gives us free will to to choose faith, and he gives us free will to repudiate that faith. You may quit if you wish. You can say no to God, but God will not keep you against his will. But here's the thing. It's not the kind of thing that you can just kind of slip into uh, by chance or by ignorance You see, losing your faith requires a a deliberate, sustained, determined act of rejection. You may have your ups and downs. You may be full of faith one day and, and full of doubt the next day, but you may break your promises to God, but God never breaks His promises to us. He's a God who is faithful. He pursues us relentlessly, and He is faithful to His commitment to us. And so you and I, we are secure not because we are sure of ourselves, not because we're sure of science, but because we trust in a God who loves us. So we don't have to trust in our performance. We don't have to trust in in our high moral standards. We don't have to trust in our good living. We only have to trust in God's promise to us, his power to protect us. During this pandemic, I've been uh, praying Psalm 91 a lot. (laughs) It's a hymn that's celebrating God's protection, and the psalmist addresses a number of potentially lethal lethal threats, traps, uh, terrors at night, arrows by day, war, pestilence, plague, disasters, lions, and even snakes. But none of these things upset the psalmist. Indeed, he writes this, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, no doubt when he wrote those words that he was in the city of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was itself a fortress. It sat circled by hills and itself was, was on the highest hill in the area. And the walls of the city were of great height and, and depth. When the Roman general Titus arrived in 70 A.D. to put down the Jewish revolt, it took him 80,000 troops and five months To defeat a a small army of 25,000 untrained and undisciplined rebels. You see, a city needed those kinds of walls. City life in the ancient world was dangerous disease and plague, roaming bandits, invading armies. Cities needed an elaborate and extensive fortress to make them safe. But we have the Lord. It's interesting that when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, that uh, the devil quoted Psalm 91 to encourage Jesus to jump off the roof of the temple. He tried to bait Jesus by claiming that God would protect him from harm. Go ahead, jump off. God won't let anything happen to you. But Jesus doesn't take the bait, does he? Instead, he, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, God is your fortress. God is your refuge. God is your protector. But, but don't go doing stupid stuff, okay? Don't do the dumb stuff. Don't put yourself needlessly in danger and then expect God to come along and, and bail you out. Don't put him to a test. Some of us are in danger of doing that, you know. Some of us are walking too close to the edge, thinking that somehow, you know, we're, we're going to be okay. See, people of faith have the same needs for protection and security that everybody else does. We keep our doors locked and we turn on our security lights, but what sets us apart is that we also have God. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. God is our security. And so we don't have to keep looking over our shoulders to make sure that evil isn't catching up with us. We don't have to come down to the altar every Sunday to make sure that somehow we lost our salvation Monday through Saturday to get saved again. We don't have to keep taking our spiritual temperature to see if somehow we're in danger of backsliding but here's the truth. Evil knows my weakness. Evil knows my Achilles heel. Evil knows where I am most vulnerable. And evil comes at me over and over again to wear me down and to beat me up. Evil knows what I fear the most and what shames me. And evil comes at me When I am tired and worn out and ready to throw in the towel. And what keeps me from doing that are these words. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. In this simple verse, Isaiah tells us something that's very important, critical for all of us to know. That yes, evil is relentless, but it's also temporary. You see, my bad moments are just that. They are moments. Christian cosmology sees the resurrection as the decisive moment in human history when the tide of battle was turned, that Jesus won over the powers of darkness and evil, and death has been defeated and is on the run, folks. Paul bore witness to this in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, and God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. And here's why. The greatest power in the universe lives inside of you. The true essence of God's protection is this. It's the indwelling presence of the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit bears witness that I am a child of God. And so, and Paul would write in, in Romans 8, he says, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And so you see, at our conversion, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and enables us to live the Christ-centered life. And he reminds us each and every day, each and every moment, that we belong to God, that we are his son, that we are his daughter. In fact, that we can call God Daddy, Abba the most intimate relationship between a parent and a child. And that Holy Spirit is in you as a sign of ownership. The Holy Spirit, is, Paul says, is, is the seal of that ownership. I have a seal that I use in my, with my library books. Every time I get a brand new book, I, I stamp that book, and inside it says, this belongs to the library of Mark Rowland. And the reason I put that in there is when I loan you that book, I want it back, by golly. That's my seal of ownership. Holy Spirit does the same thing in you. He puts that mark upon you that you belong to him. Hands off, hands off everybody else. And because he lives within me, I can hear his voice. I can sense his his leading. I can relax and rest in his comfort. And I can have this ongoing conversation going on uh, with him. Not, Not this outward voice, but deep in my heart, reminding me over and over again that I belong to him, that I'm a part of his family. Because the moment that we give our lives to Christ and confess faith in him, the Holy Spirit comes in and he lives in us, and he begins to drive out the fear of death, which is the ultimate fear, that we all have. During my 41 years of being a pastor, I have been the honored guest at the bedside of dying saints. And oftentimes I have watched in amazement at the peace that they have, knowing that death is at hand. Uh, Years and and years ago, early in my ministry at another church, I I had this little spirit-filled lady in my church. Her name was Maureen. She was probably about, five, or about four foot ten and, and maybe a hundred pounds, maybe. And, and the last few years, uh, she was in a nursing home. And, and every time that, that I would come in the room, she would say, Oh, Pastor, I'm ready to go home and see Jesus. And, and then she would almost shout, She'd say, Oh, Lord, let me come home now. <laughs> and nurses would kind of peek in the door, make sure everything was okay. But it was just marine, just marine. You see, courage is fear that's been conquered by trust. I love what Peter writes. He says, don't be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. You see, when Christ begins to reign in your heart, fear can no longer control us. And right now, there's a lot of of us living in fear. Her lives have been turned upside down. It's scary just to get onto an airplane or go to a movie or to a restaurant or or to send your kids to school or or to go anywhere where there's a crowd. Now hear me, the the presence of fear is not a sign of weakness, no. It's not a sign of your lack of faith. I hope I've not given that impression today because such feelings are common to us all. But it is a sign of strength to overcome that fear. You see, courage and and boldness are not so much the absence of fear as it is the control of fear because of our confidence in God. And God promises us that control. The Bible says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. Think what a game changer this can be for us. To be a person who has a living relationship with Christ, who knows the assurance of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and who fears nothing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your promise. That fear is and evil is but for a moment. Thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit who can, lives in us and who has marked us with his seal that we belong to you, that you are our Heavenly Father, you are our Abba Daddy. Help us, O oh God, to, more and more to trust in you, to overcome our fears, O oh God, with your presence, with your protection. With your love, hear this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.